When it comes to being competitive at Pikes Peak, power and weight are key. And with 1150 horsepower and just a touch over 1100 kgs of weight, this E36 behind me should be a pretty potent competitor in the open class. Now we're here with Wayne from Bimmer Sport, engineer behind this car, to find out a little bit about what makes it tick. Welcome to High Performance Academy's Tuned In Field Report podcast series. In these special midweek episodes, we look back through our archives to find the best conversations we've had through years worth of attending the best automotive events across the globe. We've pulled the audio from these tech-filled interviews with some of the industry's most well-known figures for you to enjoy as a quick hit of insider knowledge. So first of all, Wayne, why the decision to go with the E36 chassis? In terms of BMW heritage, that's actually now getting to be relatively dated, maybe not in base form the most aerodynamic selection from the BMW stable, so what was the driving force there? It's just a nostalgic kind of a thing because um, this, you know, when Bimmer World started, these are the cars that they were selling parts for, and um, it's a favorite among the Bimmer World crowd, so... Um, also, the older cars are a little smaller too, so a little less frontal area, but not any you know real strategic or performance uh, reason. So yeah, I, I guess when you're really starting to build a clean sheet car from the ground up with uh, no limitations, then realistically the body shape doesn't end up being the biggest factor in the whole build. Right, and um, you know. It's a little easier to pick up one of these cost-wise. We spent a lot on the build, but the car we started with um, didn't cost. Pretty cost-effective by starting point. Now, interestingly though, there's not really a lot of BMW E36 left in it. I want to start with the chassis itself. So you've gone away from a factory-style monocoque chassis, uh, you've gone to a complete tube chassis. So what was the driver behind that? Was that an essential aspect of being competitive in the open class? So... The, oddly enough, the move to the tube chassis started with the engine. Um, originally, the car was going to be an inline six, which is what these cars came with, so it fits in there nicely. But we eventually decided to go with the V8, and the V8 sits on top of the frame rails. So, uh, so basically no way of fitting it with a stock chassis? Yeah, no way to fit it um, with the frame rails and the struts from the original car. And so once we decided that we were going to have to cut off the frame rails um, and with the big tunnels under the car, it just kind of made sense to uh, go to a tube chassis. We still do have the, the, the body is a real shell, the, the roof and um, quarter panels and all is still a, a metal shell. Uh, so always still steel components there? Yep. But it does sit on top of a, of a tube chassis, not just a roll cage. Yep. Okay, so you just mentioned that engine, which is what I wanted to get into next. So, uh, as you said, these came out in stock form with an inline six. So, you've now got a twin turbo V8. Can you tell us what uh, was that engine sourced from? What is the engine itself? So, it's the same, it's the P63 from the GT3 M6. Um, uh, the uh, BMW races in WeatherTech. And so. That's the race version of the S63, which comes in the M5 and the M6. But this base engine actually started life as a GT3 race engine? Yes. And um, we 
uh, Roush Engines has done a lot of work. I don't know all the internals, all the things they've done, but yes, they've done a lot of internal work. The GT3 series, they're making around 500 horsepower, give or take, and we're more than doubling that. So yeah, we so let's just go back on that because in GT3 form uh, there's a variety of different cars running in the GT3 class and to try and get some kind of balance of performance one of the key aspects that, that uh, they have available is the restrictor size so that's how the, the power is restricted down to 500 horse so straight away you get rid of those restrictors on the inlet that's going to allow the engine to breathe and you can make a lot more power but of course then the next thing you come up against is the limitations of the factory turbochargers uh, safe to assume that you've gone to a larger turbo here to make 1100 plus horsepower yes i don't know the specs on the turbos but they were sourced from WiseTech, and um it's a bigger turbo i don't know the the all the specs on the turbo um roush worked with WiseTech on that so in terms of keeping the engine reliable again at that sort of power level you're talking double where they are at gt3 where they are well proven and reliable but this is a completely different ballpark all right so talking about the rest of that chassis another key change you've made here which is quite unique is it's no longer running a gearbox straight off the back of the engine so you've gone to a transaxle and tell us a little bit about the decision behind that transaxle so it um, helps with the packaging because there's not a lot of room for the driver's feet and so now we just have a drive shaft going to the back of the engine it gives us a little more room in the cockpit um, it's also nice for weight distribution these cars can have a tendency to have uh, more than 50 percent on the front axle so uh, transaxle puts some weight in the back and with this particular transaxle the gears are forward of the axle and below the axle, which is exactly where you would want to put the weight if you had a choice. So, Have you got an idea for what the finished weight split front to rear is going to be now with that transaxle? Uh, we believe it's going to be really close to 50-50. We have weighed the car a number of times before it was completed to the point where it is now. And... Um, it was 50-50. Now, there were a few components missing at that, at that time. We haven't weighed it since we've completed it. But we were under 2,500 pounds and right on 50-50 at the time. So should be really close. And if it's not 50-50, we can probably move a couple of things around and, and get it there. Do you want to take your car knowledge game to the next level? Join us in the next free lesson at hpacademy.com free and start developing your own skills today. Now, the other aspect that's really important to keep an engine like this reliable, and particularly at Pikes Peak with the high altitude, low air density, uh, you lose a lot of cooling efficiency. So can you talk to us about the cooling package on the engine, how you've gone through the design of that in terms of both intercoolers as well as radiators for uh, engine coolant, transmission, etc.? So that's something that, um, that so our fabricator, Rich Group, uh, that's something that he worked really hard on. And um, there's, a, there's a cooler in the back of the car for the uh, gearbox. And because there's not a lot of room in the front, these, you know, these cars were a little smaller than, the, than a 3 Series we have these days. So with the V8 and the wide tires, we're a little crowded for space up front. And so, but um, it's got two radiators up front stacked in a, in a V formation like that just to get the surface area that we need. And then in front of each tire the, the, from top to bottom and the width of the tire is all intercooler on each side. Um, 
and one intercooler for each four cylinders. So in an interesting aspect as well, I mean, nothing particularly unique for a lot of the European manufacturers, uh, but the configuration of that engine actually has the exhaust manifolds in the valley between uh, the two banks of cylinders and the inlet manifolds are off to the side, where conventionally we sort of tend to see that uh, the other way around. So, I mean, does that help with your packaging in terms of the intercooler setup? Um, it worked out, you know, I've never worked with one, an engine that's laid out like that before. Um, it's it worked out nicely. Um, the the pipe the um, charge pipes from the turbos come off the top of the engine and go forward to to each corner of the car, and then um, the outlet of the intercoolers is on the bottom, and it just it's just you know about 12 inches away from the uh, intake manifolds. So it keeps everything nice and short. Yep kept everything nice and short and all the heat is on the top you know heat's going to rise anyway so all the heat's on the top of the motor and yeah it worked out really nice now in terms of the electronics package fitted to the car that's obviously another key in order to make the sort of power that you're you're talking about obviously boost control is critical making sure those turbos uh, are doing exactly what you want and then you've got that uh, paddle shifted Hollinger transaxle in the rear uh, to control the shifting off so what's the electronics controlling those and what have you got for a driver display um, so the uh, ECU is a Bosch Motorsport ECU which we will use for the gearbox as well and then for the display is a, it's a Motec display so you're using the Motec display for logging as well or is that just purely a driver display for logging also it's it's what we've typically used with our IMSA race cars and we're used to it we're used to the software the way it presents data and so yeah that's what now one of the key challenges with Pikes Peak is the altitude change at the finish line you're sort of 14,100 feet give or take and at that sort of altitude your air density is incredibly low so the problem with this is of course the engines lose power with a turbocharged engine, you've got the ability to claw back some of that by basically pushing the turbos harder as you go up the uh, hill climb. Uh, are you going to be using sort of uh, some compensations for barometric air pressure in order to uh, try and maintain a relatively consistent power level in the car? Um, so I'm going to have to plead ignorance on that a little bit. I'm the chassis guy. Um, we are we are hoping to be able to maintain power, um, but. I don't know all the ins and outs of the programming on the you know the ECU side of that. I, I did notice there you've got turbo speed sensors on each turbo. That's generally one of the key inputs the uh, calibration technicians are looking at. But as you say, you're you're in charge of the chassis, so I sort of put you on the spot. Something yeah. outside of your uh, your normal area of expertise. So let's get back to something you're probably a bit more familiar with, though. The aero. It's hard to look at this car without going past the uh, fact that the aero package on it is pretty amazing. So can can you give us any numbers on? What sort of downforce you're expecting developed from the car? So the wing um, is rated for about 17 or 1800 pounds of downforce, and um, so we have to balance that with downforce in the front of the car. Um, the wing is a little bit behind the axle, so um, we'll have to balance it with something more, you know, uh, whatever the numbers work out to. It's going to be about 2,000 pounds in the front. What sort of speed are you talking about getting that kind of downforce at? Uh, I think the wing is rated for that downforce at 150 miles per hour. 
it's not insignificant specifically given the, the weight of the car you sort of yeah definitely well and particularly with a rear wheel drive car when you're trying to make that sort of power as well obviously getting that downforce is key to, to getting traction look it's been really interesting getting some insight into the car uh, obviously it's a fresh build so look forward to seeing how you go next year at Pikes Peak wish you all the best of luck yep thank you If you enjoy this podcast, please feel free to leave us a review on whatever platform you've chosen to listen to it on. It goes a long way to helping us get the word out there. All these conversations and much more are also available in full on our High Performance Academy YouTube channel, so make sure you subscribe.